for the reading of Scripture this morning, and you'll find that in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 and going on through chapter 4. Uh, as I mentioned to you, this uh, passage in a very important way connects with Psalm 95 that we have already employed in our worship this morning. So let us hear and attend to the Word of God, beginning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now I'll ask you to be seated this morning, and then I want to continue reading on uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews. So let's continue here in the context and the flow of this passage, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, As it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. Now I'm going to ask you to keep your finger or keep a marker here in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and then turn back to Psalm 95. You see how extensively the uh, writer to the Hebrews has uh, quoted and applied and explained for us the concluding part of Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11. Um, or, or actually, uh, yeah, the second part of verse 7 down through verse 11 of 95. But we also want to look at the beginning of uh, uh, Psalm 95 as well. In that context, he quotes to us from Psalm 95, apply, applying the point, and it's that which the psalmist celebrates in the earlier part of the psalm. And so I've, I've called this, Come ye thankful people, come. I hope you can see that in the psalm. I know that's uh, the title of another a hymn that we sing, and as a matter of fact, we're going to conclude by singing that hymn this morning, Come Ye Thankful People Come. Uh, that has become a traditional and beautiful Thanksgiving hymn somewhere along the line of its 150 years existence. Uh, I don't know exactly when that hymn became so connected to Thanksgiving. Uh, the hymn was written about 150 years ago. And in our uh, Red Trinity hymnal, it's in the section on special occasions <laughs> because it's connected uh, in our, uh, I guess in our generations, it's connected with uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, interestingly enough, also in the Trinity hymnal, Matthew 13, 39 is the scripture that captions that, um, that hymn. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And so the harvest theme that is very prominent, uh, not only in that hymn, but you know throughout scripture as well, the harvest theme is fitting for a season of thanksgiving. And Psalm 95 provides us a scripture sermon for meditation on thankful worship. I really want you to uh, zero in on that this morning. Psalm 95 gives us a meditation and, a, and an exhortation for thankful worship for the harvest of souls and for providential care. Now we're blessed uh, to make the connection with this psalm, with the inspired commentary that we have on it in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 about Sabbath rest. This Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God is a faith rest. That's why we should find joy in celebrating and worshiping before God. He's brought us rest to our souls. That, that rest is connected with peace, with uh, being um, uh, resting from worry, west, resting from uncertainty, uh, resting certainly from the false idea of, of working to please God in our own merit. And that's part of what the, the Hebrew writer focuses in on in applying that part of the psalm. Because God has finished his work. And it's interesting that God gave pledge and testimony in the moral law, in the fourth commandment. And the, the, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that the reality of that Fourth commandment, the, the rest that God intended, the Sabbath, and that, that which God enjoyed and which was originally given, uh, as Jesus told us, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not to be a slave to the Sabbath. Adam and Eve were never intended to be slaves to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a gift to enter into that rest and joy and, and um, peace with God. And so he says, the writer of the Hebrews says, uh, Joshua could not give them that rest. Because of their unbelief. And of course this was also tied with their not going into the promised land. Whereas Joshua and Caleb were faithful and believed. That generation 
did not believe. And as such, God brought chastisement upon them, covenantal chastisement for their disobedience. But the Hebrew writer makes a very important point to us about the Lord's Day Sabbath rest. He says in a certain place, God blessed the seventh day. But then we find with the resurrection of Christ, we have a new Sabbath because it's a new today. That's why he keeps repeating from uh, this psalm, the word of God, the voice of God. And so over and over in Hebrews 3 and 4, the, the writer says, today, today, did you not read, did you not hear God's voice? Today, as it's called today. And so it's the, the new today, the new today of the Sabbath rest that comes through the resurrection of Christ because of the works that are finished. As God finished the works of creation, Jesus finished the works of salvation. It's a beautiful parallel and one that we need to keep uh, continually before us. So how are we sure of knowing what this Sabbath rest is and of entering it by faith? Well, the Christian believer's surety for soul rest comes as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. I hope you picked up on it as we read chapter 4. The Christian believer's surety, how we're sure of entering this soul rest by faith, comes by the ministry of the Word of God. The Word of God is quick, it's living and sharper than any two-edged sword. We often hear that in a threatening way, that it, it, it can cut between, it's so precise. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And, and nothing can hide from the power of God's Word and His insight. And He sees us even into the deepest recesses of our soul. He can divide it. But rather than presenting that to us as a matter of fear, the writer presents that to us as a matter of certainty and surety. Yes, it should get our attention. It should be sobering. But in so doing, he tells us that it's the ministry of the Word that tells us that our soul rest is sure. It's a promise that's come. It is today. And then he goes on to tell us why. Because of the mediation of Christ. Why is it that the word of God that's so powerful as a two-edged sword that nothing can hide from and it can, it can split asunder the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It can divide our thoughts. It can cut through all of our game playing and word games and mind games. The word of God cuts through it all to our conscience. Why is that not a fearful thing? Because Christ mediates for us. That's what he goes on to say. As high priest in the heavenly holy of holies, and in terms of the new covenant worship of God, we come boldly to the throne of grace. I mentioned in Sunday school that I'd be preaching on this passage and I wanted to emphasize something very importantly. And that is very often when we come to uh, this portion in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and it is individualized in terms of calling us to faith, but something we might miss is we often apply that, oh, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need because Christ has suffered and, and He is attentive to our care. We personalize that and individualize it so much that we lose the fuller context from this psalm, its application and explanation from the uh, writer of the Hebrews and the point that he's making here regarding the mediation of Christ. It is through public worship by the means of grace. We so individualize it that we miss the point, the bigger point. That it is collectively in the body of Christ. And the point is that the writer of the Hebrews is saying, we come before God in public worship through Christ and His intercession. 
we come into the presence of God. And so it is by the word of God and by the mediation of Jesus Christ through the means of grace and the public worship of God that is set before us. And I'm not saying we don't take individual benefit from that. But I'm telling you, the emphasis is on the public worship of God. That's what the psalm is all about. The benefits of cultivating new covenant Sabbath, joy in our rest that we have, the peace and assurance and comfort that is reminded to us and that is pressed upon us. It enriches us. And as we review the whole psalm, Psalm 95, it, it, it uh, leads us in the worship of God and it concludes with a warning about unbelief and disobedience in the context of public worship. We are to be uh, admonished. We are to be exhorted through the public preaching of the Word of God and the uh, ministry of the uh, means of grace. So I want you to turn back to Psalm 95. I said I want you to keep your place in uh, Hebrews 3 and 4, but I want to turn back to Psalm 95 because the whole psalm is pertinent to what the writer of the Hebrews says in chapters 3 and 4. Now, Psalm 95 is an uncomplicated psalm in its directness. I mean, you hear it when, when you read it or when you hear it read, it has an uncomplicated directness as a directory for public worship. Now, it's not exhaustive, and it, it may not be like what we want. We would like for it to be set out very clearly uh, in, in uh, bullet points. It's not that way. It's not written that way. But it is uncomplicated in its directness as a directory for public worship. We are called into the public worship of God by this psalm. And it connects with the public worship that we um, are to be involved in as God's means of assuring us of soul rest by faith as a Christian believer. Do you need rest for your soul? We Soul rest that comes by faith. We often get very agitated. We get agitated in, in uncertainty, in doubts. Of course, we get agitated over the guilt of sin, but I think that there's something else working oftentimes that is the point of application of this song, of this psalm, and that is don't be unbelieving. Unbelieving brings disobedience. Do you get the connection between unbelieving or doubt and disobedience? Be believing. And by believing, know the rest, the peace, the assurance, the surety of living by faith that comes to your soul. So three times you'll see uh, in the opening verses, verses 1, 2, and 6 of this psalm, there's an urgency of coming to the Lord in public worship. Listen to this, uh, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Down to verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So three times in these opening verses, the urgency of coming to the Lord in public worship is punctuated with these imperative directives. What does he answer them with? 1, 2, and 6. Let us. Oh, come, let us. Now, that let us is an urgency that has with it the force even of command. It's not a suggestion. Uh, it may even have some sense of plea, of urgency, but it is authoritative. 
Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. One of the reasons we gather together in public worship and we sing, we're commanded by God to sing to Him. Make a joyful noise. It doesn't matter how well we sing. What matters is the content and the joy that we have in it. To make a joyful noise to the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully. And you can't get away from it, but, but here the idea is uh, we are not self-conscious about mumbling as we worship God. It doesn't matter what the people next, before, or around you think. Forget about what other people think. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Open your mouth and engage in the public worship of God. That's part of what this is about, participation. This is what I really want to emphasize as well in terms of the public worship of God is that there is to be participation in that. That's why we have a responsive reading. You're to open your mouth and engage collectively in the worship of God. We talk about being led in prayer. You are to be following along as you are led in prayer. You're not to zone out and take it as an opportunity to think about what you're going to do later today. Do you have that discipline? Do you have that kind of maturity? Do you connect with being led in prayer and following where the prayer is leading? So the, the emphasis is on participation. Look at verse 2. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. So in, in all of this psalm, the emphasis is on public worship and our participation in the public worship of God as we move through what we call the service of worship. We are serving God and worshiping Him. I think we lose sight of that. And uh, that's why I believe that uh, at the conclusion of this psalm, there's a place for exhortation in public worship. We need to be reminded, and we do need to be warned about it. And so these exuberant uh, calls to worship and participation are set in relief by the concluding warning in verses 7 and following over unbelief and unfaithfulness rooted in unthankfulness. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Let us give thanksgiving to God in public worship. And the warning that comes to us is that unbelief and unfaithfulness, disobedience, unbelief and unfaithfulness and disobedience are rooted in unthankfulness. You know why you need to be in the public worship of God and you need to be participating in the public worship of God according to the means of grace that God has appointed? So that you don't become unthankful. Boy, don't we run the risk in our materialistic culture of becoming so grumpy and dissatisfied. We have a lot of uh, sort of uh, icons in our public uh, culture Eeyore, the grumpy old uh, um, churl who's never happy, never satisfied, always looks on the, the uh, bad side of things. Uh, you know, people talk about the glass being half empty. We have all kinds of things that we do, uh, even popular icons that represent to us dissatisfaction. I think it's interesting. I think it's kind of a psychological display and of the, the risk that we run. It's not just a personality quirk. It's not just an issue of, well, that, per, that person is just sort of a, a glass half-empty kind of person. That's not what this is about. This is not about a personality quirk. 
This is about a disposition of your heart. You need to come to the public worship of God and you need to be reminded from the word of God to be thankful because we run the risk in our flesh of becoming churlish and continually dissatisfied, selfish, and unthankful. Look, popular culture, and particularly the uh, um, celebrity culture, has capitalized on that. They want to keep you dissatisfied. The materialistic advertising culture wants to keep you completely dissatisfied, so you're always wanting more. And in so doing, you spend money <laughs> to, to buy their product. This will make you happy. This will make you fulfilled. This will make you feel better. They even have a, um, a new, uh, I don't want to say it's a new psychological term, but a, a, another psychological term that is developed out of that buyer's remorse. <laughs> You're being played if you listen to the world. I want to say to our young people particularly, you're being played if you listen to the world that says you'll find happiness and satisfaction in things, in these cultural icons that say they give you status. They're not going to bring you happiness. And so we need to come into the public worship of God and participate in the public worship of God to remind us and for God's means of grace to work in us thankfulness for what's really important. So who is God and how is he to be worshipped in this psalm? Well, here are some things you could take with you. I don't have time to elaborate on them, but I just want to point them out to you. Who is God? He is the covenant personal Lord. Whenever you see that uh, title for God, Lord, in all capital letters, that is his designation of himself, his self-revelation, that he is the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who can be known in covenant terms as Lord and Master. You are obligated to him. Are you a subject? Are you a willing subject of the King of Kings? Are you a willing subject of the Lord of Lords? He is the covenant God. He is the rock of our salvation. What a wonderful term there because of the unsteadiness set in contrast to the unsteadiness of the sea, which represents the world, the, the, the uh, wishy-washy, weak, unsettled world. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the great God. I mean, in case you don't, don't get it, the psalmist says very plainly, He is the great God. He is the great King over all spirits and powers. These are attributes that God claims for Himself. It's His self-revelation. We need to get into, can I say this? We need to get into the guts of Scripture. <laughs> we need to get into it. In that He is the great King of all spirits and powers. Because He is the Maker. He is the Creator. And he is the Savior. That's why I often reflect upon this and I pray about it and I state it publicly as boldly as I can. You cannot separate God being creator and Savior. And that's one of the, the prime targets. And again, I speak to our young people who are being assaulted by their faith in the world and in the halls of academia saying that you're foolish to believe that God is a creator, to believe in a personal being and creator. But that's what the Bible tells us, God's self-revelation if you're going to know him as Savior, you must also know him and confess him as, as creator. There's no other way. It is inseparable. Throughout scripture, God is presented to us as creator and Savior. You need to hear the voice of scripture. You need to hear what this psalm says. Today, you need to hear his voice. He is 
our shepherd. I hope you notice that too here in this psalm in verse 7. That he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Isn't that such a tremendously comforting um, biblical motif? I'm sure you know about it. Uh, We immediately think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We also think of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And so that motif in scripture of shepherd and sheep is rich. And we are the sheep of his hand. We are the sheep under his guiding and protecting and caring hand. Again, beautiful imagery, poetic imagery that's used here. And so what this psalm is reminding us of in the public worship of God is that God is personally present in the world of his creation and in the providential care of his people. That's what calls us to faith. Confessing God is the creator. He is the great God. There's none other. He alone is God. But this great God creator is also the provider of his people, his sheep, like a shepherd, in tender and caring terms. Um, I know I'll make a big deal out of God being creator and savior, but there's something that settled upon me uh, years ago, uh, even though I had... um, defended and had believed and uh, publicly defended God as creator and not in any kind of compromise with false teachings of evolution and so forth, but as Scripture teaches it, that God creates out of nothing. God is directly the creator, and his way of creating is recorded in Scripture. No matter how deep and, and mysterious it is, he is the creator. But, but what really settled upon me was in Revelation chapter um, 4 and 5. Because when the curtain is pulled back a little bit and we peek into heaven, into the heavenly precincts of the heavenly holy of holies and the worship of God there, if you read chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, do you know what's being celebrated there? The antiphonal doxologies and glories of God the Creator and God the Savior. You ought to go home and read it. Revelation 4 and 5. God being worshipped in heaven, declared to be Creator and Savior. It's inseparable. And the emphasis in this psalm, of course, is participation in public worship. I keep bringing that back and hammering it over and over. The the emphasis in this psalm is on participation in public worship. Here's what uh, a good insight from Dr. Kidner on this psalm says. Like most of the verbs in this psalm, they are urged upon us as worshipers. Indeed, we address one another to make sure that we rise to the occasion. No drifting into his courts preoccupied and apathetic. That's why we have an interaction and a participation in the public worship of God so that you be engaged and a part of it and participating in it. And so we talk about this antiphonal worship. Uh, uh, For example, in the description that's given us in in, uh, Hebrews, uh, in uh, Revelation 4 and 5, there is antiphonal doxologies uh, from the different uh, worshipers in heaven calling to one another in their worship of God. You need to go and read that. It's so exhilarating. And you know what happens? Not only do we engage and call to one another in the public worship of God, like, for example, in the responsive reading, I call out a, a, a portion of Scripture. You respond by reading a portion of Scripture. I've given other examples. We sing together. We lift our voices. We sing uh, in participation. Sometimes uh, we have people who are gifted enough to even sing in parts of the music. It calls back and forth, not strictly antiphonal, but nonetheless engaged and connected. 
And so when we are in the worship of God, there's to be antiphonal worship going on in our souls. This is something I want to emphasize to you as well. Heart and emotions call out to mind and reason. Did you hear that in this psalm? There are emotional words in this psalm. Joyful. Shout. <laughs> okay, These are, are emotional words. But they're not empty. They're not vain. They are connected to the mind and reason. Why are we shouting? Why are we joyful? As our mind is engaged with the promises of God and the revelation that God has given of Himself, who He is. So our shouting and our joy is not something that is self-generated. It's something that is the outworking of our faith and believing and trusting what God has said about himself. And so, how is God to be worshipped? This psalm tells us who God is. It also tells us how he is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped with singing. I already mentioned that to you. He's to be worshipped with joyful voices. He's to be worshipped with eager attendance and self-conscious thanksgiving, acknowledging his presence. He's to be worshipped informed by psalms. Did you see here where it says, let us come and, and sing before him with psalms? Well, it's not just limited to psalms. Psalms represent to us the word of God. Do you know what Jesus said? After the resurrection, on more than one occasion, Jesus opened the scriptures and all the law and the prophets and the psalms to teach them the things concerning himself. In all of scripture, Jesus says, I want you to make the connection that it's about me. I am revealing to you what this means. Psalm 95 is about Jesus. We already talked about the shepherd. We talked about God the creator. In every appellation that there is of who God is, Jesus says, that's me. The covenant Lord. And so, we are to be informed by the word of God. We are to sing and employ the word of God from all the holy scriptures there are some of the scriptures that are specifically designated for public worship. Psalm 95, I hope you're convinced, is designated to us about public worship. The Maskell Psalms, I believe, are about public worship. We have examples of the names and the uh, personal incommunicable attributes of God being celebrated in public worship. He is God and there's none other like Him. We talk about the omnis, that God is all-present, that God is all-powerful. Uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, God's all-knowing, even in application from this psalm, that nothing is hidden from his knowledge, from his sight, looking into your heart and into your mind. And elsewhere in Scripture, it's repeated to us concerning God being all-knowing. So these things are celebrated. We're reminded of them. We're reminded of who God is. Beloved, the world wants to disguise and mislead and deny who God is. I can't help it, but even at this time of the year, I used to rejoice in Advent season because very commonly uh, in our public culture, uh, going into the stores or on the radio, you would hear Christmas songs that are biblically based. We would hear the traditional Christmas story, Joy to the world, silent night, O come all ye faithful, the first Noel. I mean, I can go on and on. And you still sometimes hear them, but not as much as you used to. You know what I hear more about now? trying to find some kind of elusive 
Christmas spirit. Oh, let's find the Christmas spirit of giving, of generosity. Let's find the Christmas spirit of being kind to one another. Let's find the Christmas spirit. You know, there's that, that, that story about uh, the shoppers being all um, haggard and worn out, and they're trying to get on the elevator at the department store, and they finally all struggle in, packages falling, falling and, and tumbling, and are all mashed together. And somebody says, I don't know who invented Christmas, but they ought to be uh, crucified. And somebody else says, well, yeah, they, they were. And the whole point is we miss what Christmas is about because we get so bogged down and so preoccupied and so self-focused. And maybe not just about ourselves, but thinking we've got to have the perfect Christmas for our family. We've got to have the perfect Christmas tree. We've got to have the perfect decoration. We've got to have perfect atmosphere. You know, that's been exploded over and over as unsatisfying. And so the public worship of God reminds us to be thankful and to focus on who God really is. It should do that. So participation in the public worship of God has to do with postures that are honoring and submissive by way of obeying. And it's not just physical postures, but the posture of our soul, the posture of our mind, the posture of our will. This, again, is something from uh, Dr. Kidner that I I think is a wonderful insight. Each of the three main verbs in verse 6 is concerned with getting low before God. Since the standard word for worship in Scripture means to prostrate oneself, to be laid out. Now, the idea of worship expressing uh, worship or worthiness of God belongs to the English word, not the Hebrew or the Greek, uh, although it does occur. A public act of homage is urged on us here as a part of the service we owe to God, accepting our own place and acknowledging His. At the same time, it is intimate and not the tribute of strangers. You know, when I ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God as you're able, and we don't don't try to bind your conscience with that, as you're able, you know, stand, because we want to acknowledge this is the Word of God and not the Word of men. So so standing in that way is an homage, is a way of respect and honor that we show to God. Uh, Very commonly, we bow our heads when we pray. Bowing our heads when we pray is not a cue to take a nap. It's a time to to demonstrate, oh, the, the power of God is over us. And we bow in reverence. Can you bow your head and close your eyes and still keep your ears open and your heart engaged and mind in the prayer to God? Lifting our hands. Lifting our hands is a sign of of submission and of giving and of also receiving. Why why do we think this just has to have one one meaning? (laughs) It's replete with meaning. So there is engagement, even in our postures, demonstrating submission and honor to God, which the concluding warning of this psalm is all about. Don't miss it. Be exhorted. Be warned. There is a place for warning. Here's what the confession says, our Westminster Confession, that I think is so rich. Uh, This is from from chapter 21 about uh, uh, worship of God. The reading of Scripture with godly fear. Man, godly fear is not something we need to try to drum up or stir up in us. Whenever we read Scripture, it should register upon us, this is the Word of God and not the Word of men. Reading the Scriptures with godly fear the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, 
singing of psalms with grace in the heart. These are parts of the public worship of God that are warranted, that are documented from the Holy Scriptures. Sometimes people have gotten the wrong idea that they can reinvent worship. That somehow it's not working. And so we need to come and just, you know, no longer be um, bound or tied up with these things. The reason the confession says these things is because they're warranted by Scripture. This is what God reveals. And therefore, this is what we are to hold on to. Uh, To hear His most holy word is present here, presented here as a primary act of worship in this psalm. To hear the word of God. And hear, or uh, hearken, in the old translation, hearken to, hear, pay attention, has often the added dimension in Hebrew of obey. So the idea is not just that it's a, a, a physical response, that you hear, there's noise and you hear it. We're not talking about that physiology of sound. This is a moral address. Hearken, listen to. And so uh, Dr. Kidner says that this is the Old Testament main word for obedience, is to hearken, to pay attention to. So the worshiper singing this psalm is reminded to ask himself how he hears. Will it be obediently? How are you receiving are you conscionably receiving? That means in your conscience, are you receiving the word of God and are you listening to it as the voice of God? You see, that's what the psalm says and that's what is taught us throughout Scripture is that the voice of Scripture is the voice of God. Now, there are times in Scripture where other speakers are identified to us, but it's God who is identifying them. Did you ever think about that? When we have portions of Scripture that says the devil or the demons, in the case of Jesus, spoke. Who tells us that they spoke? It's God's word that tells us this is what the devil said to Jesus. It's God's word who tells us this is what the demons spoke. And so the Bible clarifies for us, whether it's prophets or false prophets, whether it's spirits or or, or angels or demons, whether it's Jesus or the apostles or false teachers, The Bible clarifies for us who is speaking. But it's telling us it's the voice of God. It's the authoritative voice of God. God's voice. Hear Him. Hearken. Listen and pay attention to what He says. And so that brings us then to the conclusion uh, of this psalm, um, verses 8 through 11, where Hebrews chapters. Uh, three and four pick up with explaining to us what this psalm is about and the admonition. What is the purpose of admonitions? An admonition is authoritative counsel or warning. It's not just an emotional outburst if you see uh, a threat or a danger. Like a, um, a mama or a daddy telling one of their children to be careful. Watch out, there's a snake. Or be careful, don't go out in the road. No, this is an admonition, is an authoritative counsel or warning. Maybe before that time, mama or daddy has told the child, you never go out into the road without looking. You never do this. There's counsel as a pastor. 
I am counseling you with the word of God. I'm admonishing you in the public worship of God. I'm giving you warnings that come from the word of God. Now, about admonitions from the word of God. Listen, I want you to pay attention to something. Because oftentimes we get misguided and misdirected by this. Admonition, authoritative counsel and warning is not overbearing negative browbeating. Some people think, well, this is really good preaching if you just get beat up. I'm not here to beat you up emotionally. I'm not here to beat you up psychologically. The Holy Spirit will get a hold of you from the Word of God. And so do not make the mistake that, well, really good preaching is when it's overbearing and, and uh, negative and you're just beat down with it. That's not sound preaching. A public Counsel and warning that comes by admonition or exhortation from the Word of God is not conscience-binding guilt manipulation. This is another false way of preaching. People think, well, that preacher really has power because he binds people's conscience with false things that are not in Scripture. This is one of the chief things that Jesus warned about and condemned the Pharisees over. You bind conscience, but not with the Word of God. So I am not here to bind your conscience with things that are not pressed upon us by Scripture. And then exhortation and admonitions that come from the Word of God with sound counsel and warning are not emotion-based programming directed to individual pietism and making you feel spiritual. It is not my place to design a worship service, to pick the music, to direct the various elements of the worship. It is not my um, charge from God to try to set that up so that it's emotionally stirring you up to feel a certain way. And that's one of the things that has happened to public worship. It's just become a, an emotion-based program with the idea of making people feel some kind of spiritual way. And all of these are psychological corruption. It's not the exhortation and the admonition that Scripture is talking about and that it's given to us in application of this psalm. If you look back at Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, I ask you to keep your place there. And um, I just I want to point out some things to you. Uh, you could go back and you could read uh, this psalm and this connection uh, from what I've been making this morning in a fuller way. But here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the writer picks up with the latter part of verse 95, of, of, of Psalm 95. But you need to understand that he's not just picking up Psalm 95 here and dividing it up and saying, oh, let me just cherry pick these verses. He's picking up from Psalm 95 what it has said first about the public worship of God and now coming by way of admonition and by way of exhortation, the writer of the Hebrews is making this application. He's expounding and making the application to us from Psalm 95, expecting that we know the first part of the psalm. And so what does he say? He says this comes by way of preaching the gospel. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Who is the them? That generation that disobeyed God and that wandered in the wilderness. The gospel was preached to them. Look at uh, verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. 
What was preached to them? The gospel was preached to them. The gospel that was pledged even in the soul Sabbath. The rest of faith that comes by trusting and believing and obeying God. And then you'll note something here I want you to pick up on. The writer of the Hebrews echoes Psalm 95 by what? By the imperative directives. Let us. Remember how I pointed that out to you in Psalm 95? Let us. Well, the writer of the Hebrews picks up on that. And look at what he says. Accompanying the warnings and the counseling by the sanctified means of grace through public worship. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he does. He gives us a warning, and then he gives us the counsel to the God's sanctified means of grace. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. Here's the warning. Let us fear, and here's the application. Lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So that is an exhortation. That's what I'm saying to you this morning. You are to rightly fear God. He is God. Remember the first part of the psalm, who He is? Do you have a reverent fear of God? Well, here's the warning. Lest you seem to fall short. That's the burden on my soul. That none of you fall short of that Rest that comes by faith. And then if you will look again at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. This is the warning. Let us give attention to it. Let us be diligent. You know what it is to be diligent? If you're interested in something, you give your attention to it. You're diligent. You focus and so that's what the, psalm, uh, what the writer of the Hebrews is making application of this psalm about. Let us, therefore, give our attention to it. Let us be diligent. Let us focus. Let us be uh, clear and direct about this to enter that rest. Have we prized the soul rest that comes by faith to being at peace with God, to, to have rest in our soul? Here's the warning lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. God has given us an example, many examples, but he gives the example of the generation other than Joshua and Caleb who disobeyed and didn't believe God. God said, go in, I'm going to give you the promise. They're giants, we can't do, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're going to squish us like bugs. God was displeased with their faithlessness with their disobedience because they didn't believe they didn't do remember what we're talking about unthankfulness is the root for unbelief and disobedience and one of the primary applications that the writer of the Hebrews makes and that I want to make is well what use is it going to church why do we even go why do we even go into the promised land why, why do we try to go there we're just going to be destroyed. Why do we even come to church? It's just the same thing over and over. And, and tomorrow I'm going to have to go back to work or go to school. I'm going to face the same people. I'm going to have the same challenge. I'm going to have the same unhappiness. I, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. I want more out of life. You see, we start thinking that way. And from the public worship of God, we're, we're to be warned, don't 
fall according to the same example of disobedience. We don't believe and therefore we don't do. I don't believe it's any good going to church so I won't go. And, and that follows through in many ways. I don't believe it does any good to pray, so I'm not going to pray. I don't really believe it does any good to, believe, to, to read the Bible, so I'm not going to read it. I hope you're being sobered by these observations because that's what the intent of exhortation is for. Look at verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because, for we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. You see? Let us hold fast our confession. Believe what we say. Having said it from the heart, having believed it, continue believing it and saying it for we have a high priest who cares about us this is why you need to come to the public worship of God you need to be reminded over and over again as I do that we believe and we do we hold on to our confession Jesus does care about me Jesus is not blind to what I'm going through Jesus is making intercession in the public worship of God my singing and praying and hearing is all God's appointed means of favor for me to do in obedience, chiefly to continue worshiping Him. That's where rest for your soul comes. Worshiping God brings peace to your soul if you're worshiping in faith. And then verse 16, he concludes again, Picking up from Psalm 95, those imperative decrees or those imperative directives, let us. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. See, that, that's the, the word that is an admonition. It's not just a warning, it's a counsel. He's counseling us. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And this is where I want to really focus in on something by way of, of conclusion. How often have we read this verse? How often have we appealed to this verse? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, and we've used it individually. Let me come boldly to the throne of grace in prayer. Let me come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need or struggle or difficulty or warning or hurt or uh, repentance or uh, fear or a weak faith and doubt. Let me come boldly to the throne of grace. But... Do you please understand the first application of this is in the public worship of God and by God's means of grace? How do you come boldly to the throne of grace? You come into the worship of God. You come into God's means of grace. You come into among the people of God, the body of Christ. And I'm not saying that this doesn't have an application to our individual faith and to our need in prayer and in wrestling before the Lord in our soul, in our prayer closet, or in our mind, or in our struggle. I'm not saying it doesn't apply there, but I'm saying you're missing something if you don't understand that this first applies to the public worship of God and God's appointed means of grace, and where you are being warned, exhorted, and uh, counseled with His Word. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. Don't forsake the public means of grace. Don't forsake the public worship of God and be reminded 
that where you find soul rest is in who God is and what God has designed and what God has approved and what God has empowered to give you that soul rest. Sabbath for your soul by faith. We're faithfully ministering the Word of God and through the mediation and intercession of Jesus Christ. This is how we come boldly to the throne of grace. I've heard people try to expostulate on how to come boldly. You know, come uh, with the promises of God. Load up, you know, you're, you're coming into God with these demanding of God. Here's your promises. Here's what you said, God. Here. That's not what's in this text. Coming boldly means coming in worship. Publicly. Coming to the throne of grace. As the psalm said, come let us worship the Lord. Let us bow down to our creator. Let us worship God who is our shepherd and who cares for our souls. We are the sheep of his hand. And so let us therefore come the counsel given from Scripture for this purpose, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, when I read the scriptural absolution, you know what that means, the scriptures that say your sins are forgiven. Now, I, I choose different portions of Scripture to connect with that meaning. If we don't hear the word forgiveness, if we're not con making connection, then we need to grow up. Sometimes we get so tied in and bound like, oh, pastor, if you're giving the absolution, if you're giving the, the word of promise that our sins have been forgiven, you have to actually use the word forgiveness. No, that's not how Scripture works. It's not that we have to hear the word forgiveness. It's we have to hear who God is. Do you know another word of forgiveness? I will never forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, that connects with God's forgiveness. Do you, do you hear here what Scripture says? We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is rooted in forgiveness and reconciliation and that we have a relationship with God. We will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So I'm not here to play psychological games to try to manipulate you or your emotions or your mind or, or such things. My responsibility before God is to exhort and encourage and teach and proclaim what God's Word says. And so that's what this morning I hope you will go away with. I hope you will go away enriched by Psalm 95. Come, ye thankful people, come. That you be a thankful people. That you be thankful to come into the public worship of God. That you be open-handed in wanting to receive and give in terms of the goodness of God. That you receive exhortation, not with a stiff neck, not with a hard heart, not with a, a, a resistant mind. You're not going to tell me what to do, preacher. I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to lead you to soul rest. I want to lead you to the Sabbath of God. I want you to find peace and rest with God and no longer resist His will. And I want us as a congregation in the public worship of God, first and foremost, to come boldly before the throne of grace.
coming boldly to the throne of grace, that we publicly worship God with joy and the promise of his presence, to hear his voice, to hearken today. For today is the day of the new covenant. Our concluding hymn.